It's just not possible to gain that much in value that quickly with declining revenue. And that's when I really had the epiphany that investing was not about stocks and bonds. Investing is about innovation. The belief is if there's a new piece of information, that it will be instantly incorporated into the price of the stock or the bond or whatever. But that's not how people change their minds. Welcome back. I'm Hayden Brain, and you're listening to Opto Sessions, where we interview the top traders and investors from around the world, uncovering their secrets to success. Today, I welcome back Diego Perilla, Managing Partner and Investment Manager at Quadriga Asset Managers. With 20 years' experience in macro investing, commodities, and trading in London, Singapore, and New York, Diego has managed teams in world-renowned investment banks, including JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs, and Merrill Lynch. Diego is a best-selling author, too publishing The Energy World is Flat in 2015 and The Anti-Bubbles in 2017. We discuss the Fed's latest rate hike and whether a soft landing for the US economy is now out of reach. We also dig into European developments, analysing the recent ECB announcement and whether their new bond-buying programme will have the desired effect. Finally, we discuss Chinese divergence, highlighting the property sector's colossal debt before examining Hong Kong's liquidity crisis. And remember, to receive a roundup of Opto's best content every day, subscribe to our newsletter by clicking the link in the episode description. Enjoy. Welcome back to the show, Diego. It's great to have you on. How are things? Um, it's my pleasure. Um, all good, thank you. A uh, lot of things happening, so quite, uh, quite keen to... To have a discussion about uh, all all these issues. Yeah, definitely. Certainly speaking to you at an interesting time. For anyone listening in, this will publish on Thursday as usual. Uh, we're recording this the day after the Fed announced their rate hike. Uh, so a lot of the conversation will revolve around interest rates and inflation. Uh, and given that is one of the focuses of today's interview, I thought to introduce the topic, I thought you might explain your your contention published in the Wall Street Journal last year. I read the article. Uh, and it's centered around this idea that bubbles are too big to fail. Uh, and that's why central banks will, will struggle to tame inflation by raising rates. So why and how do you think the rules of the game have changed? Well, I um, definitely, I think we are now in a paradigm shift. Um, the last few decades, every major problem that we, we faced, it's been addressed with pretty much uh, the same measures, which is a combination of monetary and fiscal policies without limits, which um, basically took us beyond what any anyone would have thought was possible, including uh, things like uh, negative interest rates or you know back to MMT. So in that sense, what's happened is this artificial setting uh, where almost infinite liquidity and uh, infinite support has uh, unfortunately not solved the problem. What it's done is a combination of, of things. It has uh, first uh, delayed the problems. So it's kicked the can down the road, you know, through spending, through debt, effectively intergenerational issue. We are passing the problems to our children and then grandchildren in some ways. Mm. The second thing we've done is, is uh, we've transferred the problem around. And this is how currency wars and trade wars interact. You know, for for a while, you want to effectively devalue your, your way out of problems. You want to get the investment, the employment, the technology from 
from people and trade wars is in a way a way to defend yourself from this uh, artificial setting and uh, what we've seen and we've learned and this is a very important part of of what's been happening in the markets is is um, again it's transferring the, the issues and uh, not not really solving them and and so I think with that what we've done is the third thing is we've transferred the mm-hmm. problem and and that uh, transferred and transformed the problem and th- th- that transformation of the problem as we've discussed for a long time is inherently coming in the form of uh, inflation and inequality and there's a very nasty a combination of these things, which uh, we know from history can lead to social unrest and uh, polarization of, of, uh, of basically countries and civil wars and, uh, and, and bigger issues. And ultimately, what we've done with this artificial setting of artificial low interest rates, which means artificially high valuations, a lot of complacency, etc., as we created those bubbles uh, too big to fail. And so we're now in a situation where, you know, countries like, like Spain, and where I'm from, or or many others around the world, have been enjoying this uh, uh, gift, you know, of uh, being able to borrow at negative uh, nominal yields. I mean, something that uh, anybody would dream. And what's important to understand is is that interest rate, that yield environment, is artificial. I keep coming back to the word artificial because it's really not a reflection of reality. Uh, if you remove those uh, uh, basically externalities, you know, in the form of infinite printing and help, uh, it's pretty obvious that uh, Italy or Spain wouldn't be borrowing at the levels where they are. So once you're faced with uh, inflation um, in, in a way that it starts to get a little bit out of control, and inflation, as we know, has these two big dimensions. One is, you know, two plus two equals four. I mean, what's what's been done, what's been printed, and what's the impact. But, uh, but the second leg is inflation expectations. And, uh, you know, this is incredibly dangerous because once things start getting out of control, uh, then it's very difficult to stop. And so we're in a situation where central banks are being are very late to the party. They've been extraordinarily complacent, in my opinion, negligent, uh, by keeping uh, rates way too low, providing way too much support, providing way too much complacency, creating these bubbles. And now, you know, as inflation comes in and they're forced to react in a way that, I mean, the kind of hikes that what we saw yesterday uh, hasn't happened in, in many decades. I mean, it's, it's not the modus operandi of a central bank to, to uh, turn so aggressively and so fast. It's, this, is, this is something that needs to be done uh, in smaller moves, uh, telegraphed. And so w- what's happening, it's pretty extraordinary. We are already in the U.S. at levels that are effectively how far we got in the hiking uh, cycle in, in 2018. And, uh, you know, uh, those people who were around then might remember what happened. So the difference is this time around, uh, the debt is significantly higher. You can talk about perhaps the order of nine plus trillion uh, to, to, to where things were in 2018. And so the idea that you can fight inflation by hiking rates uh, on its own, it's also missing the point that there's many structural issues around this inflation. It's not only monetary, which is the bigger driver, but there are several other issues that are not going to be fixed just purely by hiking rates, including you know, lack of investment, uh, bottlenecks, 
and many other uh, considerations. So I think we are in a tricky situation where central banks are in some ways forced to to hike. Uh, those hikes may not be as efficient in, in containing inflation. And uh, by doing those hikes, you're exposing some of the bubbles that you created on the first place, including credit. And so it's ironically a situation where the better the markets hold, the more the central banks will hike. Um, and eventually, I think it's uh, leading to a, a much uh, open uh, market. It's, it's much more two-way, you know, and the new paradigm, basically, the, the old paradigm was driven by this idea of the central bank put. You know, mommy and daddy are there. If something happens, they'll come to the rescue. They can print money. They can take debt. I think we've realized that those things are not solving the problems. And we're now in a situation where as these um, uh, problems come back, uh, it's not obvious to what extent those measures will help. And so I think we are uh, ahead of us. We're going to have a very volatile time with uh, risk in, in both directions. And, you know, market could, could spike higher, could collapse. Uh, and this is all happening with uh, an economy that is clearly slowing down, arguably already in recession in several parts of the world with a major crisis with energy uh, shortages, particularly in, in Europe. And uh, it's a very delicate situation. We're already starting to see civil issues in, in, uh, around the world. Mm. So this is, this is kind of you know, the things that we were discussing at the time. And uh, what, what's ahead is to see how, how can we maneuver all this. We obviously want to be optimistic and hope that you know, we can contain things. Uh, but there's a non-negligible risk that this thing is went too far and, and, and what we're doing uh, will, will not be sufficient to control inflation and may expose the bubbles, which, you know, could, could lead to, to what, in my view, is, is the base case ahead, which is uh, stagflation. Yeah, okay. Because uh, that's where I wanted to get to, kind of what's the most likely outcome of that environment and of that context. Uh, people obviously seriously worried about the threat of recession here in the UK, across Europe and in the US as well. I mean, the UK leadership debate at the moment is centered on the economy. Rishi Sunak's talking about, you know, we can't leave this bill that we've accumulated over the past decade or two uh, and let it be footed by our children or our grandchildren, uh, which, which you kind of referred to earlier. Is the most likely scenario that there isn't a soft landing possible if we do continue to hike rates in, in the way that's happening pretty much across the globe at the moment, apart from China, but we'll, we'll, we'll come on to that. Well, I guess, you know, I think the paradigm shift also, we, we can express it in a different way, okay? Um, if, uh, and I use this analogy sometimes, you know, I, I'd say if, if investing was a video game, it would have three levels. Level one is, can you make money in nominal terms? Mm. And basically what it means is, you know, Hayden, here's a hundred bucks, hundred pounds, go and uh, make some money and, and, you know, come back with 101, 103, whatever. This is the way we've operated for a while. We've thought about returns in nominal terms, uh, largely because inflation was negligible. Uh, I think we are now deep into level two, which is basically, can you make money in real terms? It says, okay, Hayden, great. Uh, I gave you a hundred, you gave me a hundred and one. But turns out uh, inflation was 10%, and in real terms, I actually lost 9%. Uh, we are now in that transition. 
Okay, some investors are still thinking in nominal terms, and some others, like me, are already thinking in in real terms. And the problem with this is uh, it's a completely different uh, setting in terms of be- behavior. Uh, the big losers, in my opinion, in uh, in a high inflationary scenario, in in real terms, are obviously cash, fixed income, and and credit. If you invest in a bond that you know you lend 100 euros or 100 pounds and you're going to get back 101 in 10, 20, 30 years, um, let alone this stupidity of negative interest rates <laughs> we've, we've witnessed for, for a while <laughs> where you, your 100 euros will give you back 98, right? But uh, even in the assumption that you're getting some positive nominal return, um, the reality is what are those 101 euros going to buy you in 10, 20, 30 years? And in my opinion, is not much at all. Um, so, uh, I think this monetary and fiscal abuse will be uh, financed, the party will be financed by people that are short inflation, people that are investing in fixed income and, and credit and cash. And so, I, I think the other thing that we'll see in, to, to close the, this, this third level of the investment game is, uh, can you make money in real terms after taxes? And I think that's the other dynamic that you will see. In particular, I think with inequality becoming a major issue, uh, wealth taxes. And so that, that new paradigm uh, of basically sustained high inflation, um, it's almost uh, regardless of how high nominal rates can go. So the market was uh, in the US uh, in the last few months was you know running ahead of itself, in my view, just pretending that you could hike you know, to two, three, four, five percent, and the the economy will will survive. You think about what it means for people's mortgages or governments. It's it's literally impossible for people to be able to sustain that. And and Powell yesterday uh, recognized that by saying that we're currently around what they consider neutral. Um, they they know that anything above this will be a a meaningful um, burden, uh, given the 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 level of debt. So I think this this uh, paradigm of high sustained inflation, which is the base case for me, even in a recession, because it's not just about you know the demand; it's, it's about the, the supply of money. Uh, I think that scenario of high sustained inflation and uh, nominal rates that are substantially below inflation means that we're going to live in a world of deeply negative real uh, yields and, and negative rates. And and that goes hand in hand with you know who are the winners and losers, and and that's kind of the base case. I'm not even talking about a a major uh, crisis. I'm talking about you know how how we're measuring, how we are building our portfolios, how we're protecting our savings. Um, and, but but as I said earlier, I think it's potentially worse than that because I think those imbalances. Uh, you know, the the only way to um, stop that once once this imbalance start to show for whatever reason either the hikes or or the wars or other issues will be through more of the same and and why i think uh, you know what we're seeing now it's it's uh it's it's an effort for for central banks and governments to try to find the right equilibrium but i think the damage is already done and uh so we'll see so the base case is a case in my opinion of uh 
deeply negative real uh, rate. Uh, the, the worst case is this spirals into uh, a, a bigger crisis that requires more printing and more debt uh, without growth, which gives you this taxation I was uh, perhaps uh, fearing. And, you know, you want, you want to be positive and think about, as you said, some soft landing and some miracle ways in which uh, everything gets, gets sorted out in a, in, in a, in a happy ending, uh, which is um, perhaps, uh, in, my, in my view, not, not so realistic. Uh, we, we, those successes of the last few decades uh, won't be resolved as easily. No, absolutely. Completely agree. And you mentioned Powell there, and um, we can quickly look at his comments from the news conference yesterday i mean based on the the messaging that they were able to give out yesterday how how likely is it that they'll just go for another 75 basis point increase at their september meeting or do you think they'll scale it back i mean to me it seems they're not particularly cognizant of the new paradigm that you're describing there and they do believe they can tame inflation with these rate hikes so if you if you kind of had to jump into the mind of Jay Powell at the moment, what do you think the likely outcome is at that September meeting? Well, I think the base case today is, is more fifty. They're trying to play that. Um, although uh, realistically, uh, the what, what, one of the things they've done by effectively becoming more data sensitive is there's going to be significantly more volatility. And uh, if, if you were to see another major print like like we saw a couple of weeks ago. On the inflation, then uh, you know, seventy-five or even one percent on on the table. So um, I think if if you put it in the central bank's mind, they're totally aware of the problem. They're totally, I think, at least by now, they're, they're totally aware that uh, it's going to be difficult to contain inflation. It's going to be very difficult to keep hiking without any major stress um, in in the markets and. I'm talking more about credit than equities, um, yeah. and and I think uh, that uh, dynamic. What what they need is time. I mean, what what they want to do is okay, guys, let's just kick the can. Yeah, look, yeah, inflation is stubbornly high, and I know that uh, it was another seven percent, and rates are two, and you know, if they could do this for for a few years, uh, then effectively that dilution of your purchase power is is in some ways. Uh, help resolve the problem, right? Uh, and that's kind of the game they've been playing. They've been uh, sort of uh, pretending that inflation, uh, there's no inflation, and even uh, arguing that deflation was the enemy. And and this is just a way for, for fools. You know, I, I use this analogy I, in one of my newsletters. Uh, it's called the, the frogs in boiling water. And I think it's a, it's it's quite visual for people to to try to understand what's happening on the inflation side. Because I, I would argue that we're all frogs in this monetary broth that has been boiled at an official temperature of 2% per annum. And 2% and per annum uh, temperature increase is slow enough that uh, most frogs won't notice. Yeah. Uh, but it's high enough that within 10, 20, 30 years, you're, you're dead. You know, the water is you're boiled to death. Um, and so, why would frogs jump? And I, I would argue frogs would jump for two reasons. One is because they notice a significant increase in the temperature. Like, okay, guys, there's uh, something happening here. Uh, inflation's very high. 
But uh, the second thing is the frogs will jump because the expectations that it will continue to, to go up. And once these frogs start jumping out, then we have a problem. Because uh, in some ways, you could think that uh, you know, the, the people that stay in the water are going to be boiled even further. You could, you could think that, uh, think about JGBs, yeah, the Japanese government bonds. Mm -hmm. These guys are facing, I think, uh, a major problem. They, as you know, Japan has been leading the monetary abuse uh, around the world for forever, and they, they were the, the, the first and, and largest to introduce uh, yield curve control. You know, QE, printing money is fine. Uh, giving 120 billion a month to Jay Powell to, to buy stuff, it's fine. Fine, I mean, <laughs> it's an abuse. But, but yield curve control is you have unlimited bullets to just make the 10-year JGB 10 to 25 bits. That's it. It's that because I say so. And, and because inflation has been high and frogs are starting to jump and sell basically the long-dated fixed income in Japan, uh, what you get is people say, look, fantastic. Uh, you know, I'm earning 0.1%. And within 20, 30 years, this is going to buy me nothing with high inflation. So I'm, I'm out of here. I'm going to do something else. Uh, as, as you do that, and you have such ginormous amount of debt, think about 300% you know, debt to the GDP or whatever it is, um, it's basically impossible. You cannot allow those rates to go because even the almighty Japan would face credit issues, right? So you need to keep those yields low because the debt is unsustainably high. And you're doing that well frogs are jumping out. So effectively, once the bluff of difficult control is, is called and you, they're forced to, to tap by printing more yen, you saw dollar yen going pretty much in a straight line uh, in the last few months uh, because it, it's a negative spiral. And this, this is what one of the points I keep making is, you know, when you print and try to borrow your way out, eventually leads to bigger problems. And now that, that situation we're seeing, you can extrapolate to many other places. And that's why I think this paradigm shift in some ways is accelerating and is forcing the central banks to act in, uh, forcefully. But uh, we'll, we'll see exactly what it means and how it ends. But uh, th there is plenty of things that could uh, uh, tilt it in, in the wrong direction, unfortunately. We hope you're enjoying the episode. For interviews like this every Thursday, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, make sure you give us a star rating and leave guest suggestions along with any other feedback in the review section. Now. Back to the show. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, I guess with that in mind then, and we don't often get a chance to speak to a European-based expert, so I'd like to focus at least briefly on, on European markets and, and the euro as well. Um, you know, Before we get on to last week's ECB announcement, perhaps you can just sum up, I suppose, the quandary facing European central bankers right now. Given their attempts to fight inflation, we'll likely see Real rates remain deeply negative, pressing the euro's value over the long term. And I'm thinking particularly of a, a fantastic tweet that you put out, uh, must have been a few days ago now, that kind of summed up this quandary in the overall context. Perhaps you can talk us through that. Yeah, look, I think the situation in Europe is, is dire. Um, first of all, you need to go back to 2008 in some way to put things in perspective, right? Mm. And, and Europe was very uh, orthodox, right? We, we've always been very worried about inflation because of the issues with it in Germany. And so uh, into 08, 07, 08, as Bernstein's Stearns was, was going down, uh, Europe was hiking rates, right? Now, as the UK and the US went into QE and, and Europe uh, didn't, we saw the euro dollar go to 150. And, uh, you know, in 2012, a few years later, we had our own crisis. 
uh, in, in my opinion, partially due to the loss of competitive power through the currency, not only versus the UK and the US, but also against China, which was pegged against the dollar. So in some ways, when Mario Draghi walks in, uh, one of the things he says is, you know, we'll do whatever it takes, not only to save the euro, I think the small font was to devalue the euro, right? To, 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 to fight back. it. And unfortunately, being so late to the party, it, it was forced, and I think this was an incredible mistake, and I have the biggest admiration for Mario Draghi, but I, I think going for negative nominal yields was, in fact, it was the reason why I, I, I wrote my second book, The Anti-Bubbles. It was like, what the hell are we thinking on doing? Mm. And, 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 and that was a, a, a brutal change in paradigm. But in, in some ways, you know, you, you have a situation where uh, those artificial uh, levels, you know, did, did their job in some ways with the currency. Um, but the situation today is the starting point is you have a, a big problem with the debt, particularly on the government side with, with things like Spain and Greece and Italy and all these guys. Um, and you have this setting, uh, you know, I think the fact that the market was panicking because we were going to hike rates to zero just tells the whole story about Europe. I mean, that's how dire it is. But the, I think be, beyond the credit, beyond the low level of rates, beyond the structural issues, uh, there's a very, very important part, um, which, is, which is energy. And obviously the, the war in, in Russia, Ukraine uh, has affected this. And I think it's a very important case to show some of the dynamics. And as you well know, most people will know that crude oil, you know, it's, it's a global commodity. It's a uh, liquid moves around the world. And, and to a certain extent, we're all suffering largely equally uh, the, the, the higher energy prices if you're a consumer. Uh, but there are other parts that are more regional. And in particular, I would focus on natural gas. And natural gas is very important because it's a key driver for industrial production, for electricity, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, we, uh, if you think about natural gas prices in the US, uh, which have become completely uh, separate from, from natural gas prices in Europe and, and, and Asia, uh, we're talking about natural gas prices in the region of 40 to $50 a barrel of oil equivalent, up from, you know, 20 25 just just a couple two through a few months ago uh still less than half of crude oil and uh with european prices in in dollar barrel equivalent that are you know close to 300 so europe is suffering uh you know many multiples uh on, on the energy side not only on the price but also suffering on the volume so the the issues are we have uh, if it was just a matter of price, then and you can continue to, to produce, then that would be even a, a somewhat and a less uh, of an issue. But we're we're talking about lower volumes, higher prices, and this is something that has been lasting for a while and that is going to have some uh, impact in 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 many places, particularly in Germany. Um, so, in that situation, what what do we do, right? And and the the governments in Europe and supported by the central banks, they say, well. Unfortunately, I cannot print uh, natural gas, but I can print euros to subsidize natural gas. And once again, you would think, oh my God, I, uh, we solved the problem. Look, uh, <laughs> let's just print euros. 
and we solved the problem. No, you didn't solve the problem. You, you delayed the transfer, transformed, and, and enlarged. Because what happens is, there's a couple of things I need to highlight. One is energy prices, um, high energy prices effectively destroy demand. If you cap energy prices and consumers are totally inelastic, then think about Saudi Arabia, right? Where once upon a time, uh, electricity or energy was free and you would have the aircon on and the windows open. Mm. And you do that because it's free, right? Obviously, it's not free, but it was free for you, so you, you couldn't care less, right? So uh, in that scenario, when you start subsidizing energy prices, uh, you, you're not really aware of what the real price of natural gas is because you're just paying the, the cap. But uh, the government is effectively printing euros to, to, to pay that excess, right? And so first problem is you're not destroying the demand. Uh, therefore, prices need to go significantly higher than they would have otherwise done. And secondly, the government is in that process in this spiral of printing ever more euros and ever more Chinese yuan, for example. And that effectively leads to a weaker uh, euro or weaker yuan, simply because you're being forced to print more. So I think ultimately the situation in Europe is... Uh, uh, similar to, to other parts of the world that have abused monetary and fiscal. It's been aggravated by uh, structural issues and, and divergences and things between the regions. And the war has just been, uh, uh, it continues to be tremendously painful. And I think the energy channel is one where, you know, the, the U.S. Is, is keeping an, a competitive advantage uh, versus Europe and Asia. And overall, I think the ultimate degree of freedom of the system when you do all these things uh, is always the currency. Uh, think about Venezuela or, or China uh, trying to keep their um, uh, economy afloat by just you know, subsidizing everything and keeping the perception that you can print and, and borrow your way out. But eventually, as we know in history, uh, the currency is what goes. So uh, I think Europe is in, in that situation. Uh, Euro uh, at parity or, or below is consistent with this. And, uh, you know, the outlook, unfortunately, with the current setup uh, in the war is, uh, is, is not necessarily positive. So the divergence, you know, from, from a central bank that is hiking aggressively in the US and Europe, which they should be hiking, but they, they can't, uh, it's another driver. So uh, I, I just don't see how Europe can hike uh, anywhere near what the Fed is doing. And, and we will see whether the Fed in itself is, is able to, to fulfill what's expected and, uh, or, or even have to reverse course. Yeah, it's a good point. And uh, I think it probably makes sense to go on to the ECB's current response to the context that you've laid out there. I mean, at last week's meeting, they raised interest rates by higher than signaled half a percentage point, whilst also introducing a new transmission protection instrument. Uh, which was their new sort of bond buying program. Um, first of all, can you just explain the TPI to, to the listeners as, as well as its intended impact? Well, I mean, uh, at the end of the day, the ECB is driving the car and it's pushing the accelerator and the brake at the same time. Uh, it's pushing the brake by hiking rates because this is what is needed in some ways and, and, and the US is giving some, some uh, room and that will cool a lot of the markets and expose some of the bubbles, you know, it will obviously make mortgages more expensive, it makes uh, borrowing more expensive, it makes many things. But the, the danger is, as we said, as you hike rates 
and, and you start to remove that accommodation and that support, then uh, things that were artificial, like Italian debt or, or Spanish debt, uh, if they were to normalize to where they should be, and I'm just speaking in Italy and Spain because they're obviously large and systemic and, and relevant, but there are plenty, plenty of other spots that are equal or worse. And so the fact that you cannot uh, let those basically float to where they should be, it means you need to, in a way, do QE infinity. That's what they've done. They say, look, we are going to hike rates, but we will print whatever it takes to effectively lend it to these guys because we cannot let them go down. So it's, um, it's yet again the same issue. <laughs> it's, uh, okay, uh, inflation might remain high through the, because you, you printed money, inflation remains high, yet you're hiking rates. So uh, in nominal terms, you are doing a moderate adjustment. In, in real terms, you're going perhaps even more deeply negative, which is once again, why the hell would you want to be long fixed income on the first place uh, with rates going up, inflation staying high and credit spreads potentially widening. And the fact that people might jump off that fixed income will put ever more pressure on uh, those trying to support it. So it's almost from a game theory perspective, it's almost like this uh, TPI, it's, it's QE infinity. It will be, be, need to be tapped in a meaningful way and the markets will certainly do that um, uh, once it's needed. So, you know, you can take it as a, oh my God, uh, happy days. There's, we have a floor again. Uh, we'll see. I think the risk now is, is these uh, bonds and these markets uh, sell off to, to levels that start needing support. And that will be the exit for whoever wants to get out. And uh, th there's no other buyer at those levels than, than the central bank, which is doing it by printing money while it's hiking rates. And this is, again, bearish euro. So uh, long term, it's, it's all the same, always the same. <laughs> I'm an engineer. With, I tend to simplify these things. And it's almost like it's, the machine is always, always doing the same thing, you know, a problem and you just do the same, uh, you know, yeah. spend, borrow, uh, you know, fi uh, devalue, uh, subsidize, uh, bailout, uh, et cetera, et cetera, which is a, a very dangerous addiction, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and I'm, I'm glad we got, got onto credit spreads as well, because I, I was reading this piece in the Financial Times that talked about the ECB being hyper aware that the spread widening uh, that is desperate to prevent is is of the self-fulfilling kind, or that's the way the EFT labeled it, which is quite interesting. I mean, the, the idea being where you know bond prices deteriorate for no other reason than you know market participants investors expect them to deteriorate i mean that's the thing that's fulfilling that market dynamic which which is quite interesting so i'm glad we got onto that and i guess the tpi as you're explaining there is a direct response to that market dynamic so um yeah worrying times for europe but i guess that's that's the case um across across the world um and with that, I'd like to get on and probably finish on, on China and Hong Kong. Uh, I listened to your fantastic interview last week uh, by the macro trading floor team from Blockworks Macro. Um, so it's finished by trying to get your outlook for, for this area of the world. Uh, for those not following China markets as closely as domestic US markets, how stark is the divergence in the business cycle between China and the West right now? And the rest of the world. Well, I, um, I think China is... Um 
to put it mildly, one, one of the largest bubbles in history. <laughs> ah. uh, and, and I think the way, uh, the way there's so many things that are lining up, you know, from uh, during that interview, you know, they pointed out uh, demographics, mm. right? And I'm not an expert there and, and whatever, but, but you look at the uh, projections over the medium long term and, uh, you know, given the one child policy and, and many other things, uh, China was not even top three in two decades or something like that. Significant implosion. But uh, generally speaking, I think China has been an interesting case study, right? Because they have an obsession with control, right? And they do that in so many ways, right? They, we're going to control the, the population with one child. We're going to control the exchange rate. We're going to control monetary policy. We're going to control fuel prices. We're going to control people's uh, everything and big brother, whatever. And, and that sense of uh, control and, and, and that central, uh, which looks very, very rigid, very stable. Um, I think we know, we know from, uh, uh, physics, you know, when you see a, an earthquake, uh, you know, the most resistant, uh, you know, skyscrapers in, in, in Japan, they behave like rubber, you know, <laughs> if you are, if you are made of concrete, uh, you, you fall very fast. But we, we have a, that model that uh, reminds me a little bit of uh, Spain in the, on the run up to the, to the European crisis, you know, with uh, a lot of money in, in brick and mortar, uh, the perception that you know, basically keeping the the machine with, uh, and 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 the the bubble in real estate, the bubble in infrastructure, centralized growth that says you need to grow by eight percent. And how am I going to do that? Well, I'll build another airport, another uh, roundabout, another uh, you know set of houses that that may not be needed. And and this keeps the the wheel going through levels of debt and investments that are not necessarily good investments. And you, you end up with this bubble where uh, the size of the market, as uh, pointed out by Macro Alf, uh, I think around 56 trillion, uh, the, re the Chinese real estate is significantly larger than the entire uh, US stock market and you know, many other uh, big parts. And, and you see how things are behaving you know, in terms of you know, the, the economic model, the growth, the, these uh, issues that they face where you know, now, uh, apparently, people are not paying the mortgages. You have run on some banks. You have all these things that it's from the outside. They pretend that things are quite, um, quite stable, quite controlled. But uh, I think the the situation and the divergence on across all respects, you know, economic growth, monetary policy, fiscal, everything, they're in a situation that uh, it's, in my opinion, much more fragile than than it might look. And, and in that sense, I, my view, which has been negative on China for, for a while, but quite structurally, uh, interestingly, clashes, you know, almost head to head with some people I respect enormously who see China or have seen China as uh, sort of you know, the new place to go and, and where the, the 10 year Chinese government bond was giving you, you know, fantastic yield with no risk and uh, a stable currency. And all these things that uh, could actually go the wrong way very quickly at the same time. So I think that ultimately, just just not to repeat myself too much, but I, but I do think that the model of you know delay, transfer, transform, and large applies to China uh, perfectly. And and I think 
stands out, the, the strength of the yuan um, is hard to explain in, in, uh, given uh, what's happening, what we're seeing. Uh, and it's one of those things that perhaps the Chinese government has decided that they want a, a strong yuan for, for uh, perhaps strategic reasons, which I, I position itself as a contender to the dollar as part of this new polarized world that, that is emerging. And I think the uh, devaluation of the Chinese yuan is the path that is most likely uh, most needed. And, um, and I, I, overall, I think it's, it's one of the very interesting uh, opportunities out there in terms of you know, how, how to protect yourself against a crisis or things that might be coming ahead. So I, I, I do think the risk in China has been significant. It's hard to play the, at least for me, the, the, the equity market or things that are more micro because, you know, uh, if you try to bet against the Venezuelan stock market, you know, <laughs> the, the, what, the degree of freedom there was the, um, was the Bolivar, you know, so you, the stock market could go up, you know, uh, tenfold. And, but if the currency goes down by 99%, then who cares, right? So it's almost like uh, what happens to the Chinese equity market uh, in local currency terms is almost irrelevant. It's, it's how does this work in, in real terms? And I think that the yuan is the, the degree of freedom. And, you know, I think it's something that we expect to, to, to happen and, and potentially accelerate. Um, you talked about Hong Kong as well. Uh, Hong Kong is interesting because it's it's obviously uh, uh, for a long time it was it was kind of a gateway into in, into some aspects of China, um, and and I think the dynamic has completely changed in the last few years. And I was mentioning, you know, it used to be the third largest harbor in the world. Uh, now they have Shenzhen around the corner. They used to be one of the biggest uh, financial hubs, uh, certainly for Northeast Europe, a a Asia, which. Uh, uh, I think with Beijing and Shanghai and others, it's also changed as it opens up. It used to be a place where, you know, with rule of law, where you could be uh, a pretty happy expat and, and be, you know, safe. And, well, I, I'm not questioning that, but certainly the situation has, has not improved. And, and, I, and I could go on and on, you know, with uh, evaluation and the, the business model, et cetera. So when I look at the, the Hong Kong dollar being pegged to the U.S. dollar in a situation where uh, the U.S. is monetarily uh, tightening aggressively, uh, this is really not good news for the, the Hong Kong economy or the Chinese economy, which can't uh, follow that pace. In fact, they need to go the other way. Uh, and I think that monetary divergence, uh, for me, it makes a lot more sense that the Hong Kong dollar would be pegged to the Chinese yuan than the U.S. dollar. Uh, due to the proximity, mm. the type of business. Uh, but right now, uh, you know, the market is not, um, if you look at the options market and implied volatility and things like that, this is one of the areas where the market is giving a sign in uh, virtually a, uh, a negligible probability that the, that the peg would break. Uh, it's been 37 years, 39 years, I think by now, uh, and they have large reserves, but, uh, the game has changed. And, and I would argue that you could, you could potentially do the math and say, well, at this pace, they'll be out of reserves in the next 24 months. My point is, why spend precious dollars to defend the undefendable? That was my point the other day. So I think, uh, you know, that, that podcast had the format of a trade idea. 
and I, and I picked that call option on dollar Hong Kong, which a big part of that is driven by China and which is exacerbated by the, you know, the, the idiosyncratic imbalances of, of Hong Kong, which effectively compound the problem for them. And particularly, uh, you know, when it comes down to, to that stubborn defense, which, uh, which it may well happen, it may well last. Uh, I don't have a crystal ball, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, but if it does, uh, you might be risking a very limited amount. If, if this happens, it's likely going to be in a situation where China has devalued significantly. The world is in uh, some sort of stress. And I think this is a proxy that can easily pay 50 times uh, a premium uh, or worst case. And it's a kind of trade you can put on with virtually no, no time decay, no carry. And um, so, yeah, uh, interesting times. Uh, if you think about crisis and developments, I always like to think the, the, a bit of a domino effect, a bit of a snowball effect. And certainly I think the what's happening in the US, in Europe, in China, they follow these this domino pieces that they might be falling at different times. And uh, perhaps, you know, whilst we're already seeing uh, things happening in certain parts, uh, other pieces of the domino down the line are currently not aware <laughs> that they might be falling uh, soon. And, and, and the options market, I think, will, will catch up on that. Yeah, absolutely. It's a fantastic summary of what's going on in, in China and how uh, that's intimately sort of related to what's going on in Hong Kong as well. And I think you mentioned a time horizon of around 24 months as, as, as an estimate of when that liquidity in the Hong Kong currency could run out. But Carl Bass, I think, had it, at, you know, the, the, the reserves, the liquidity of the Hong Kong dollar could be depleted by the end of next month. I mean, just just maybe flesh out uh, to, to finish on this section, kind of what what the what the base case and what the worst case is for for that liquidity crisis there? Well, think about the situation in in uh, Hong Kong. Unlike other other pegs, it's it's what is called a currency board. So here, you know, the reason why Hong Kong dollar is so stable is because there's a dollar backing uh, backing it, right? They're real dollars, real sitting somewhere. Uh, unlike you know others where you say, well, this is the relationship because I said so, right? Uh, obviously, these pegs. Are asymmetric, you know. Uh, if uh, you could, on the one hand, people could buy. Uh, you, you have infinite uh, Hong Kong, which dollars you could print, but there is a limited amount of dollars. So the more fragile side of the peg is obviously the top, the 785, where the dollar rallies and the Hong Kong dollar devalues. And if you look at the current level of FX reserves, whatever, call it in the region of 450 billion, uh, that's a very, very large number. Um, if you look at the outflows. Uh, in the last, uh, which have accelerated, we've seen 15 to 20 billion a month uh, for, uh, I mean, recently, and that happened even before we hit the top of the peg. Once you get to the top, to 785, I was mentioning the other day, it's a bit like water uh, trying to boil. I mean, you might stay at 100 degrees, you're applying uh, heat, and that heat is not being transformed into higher temperatures, it's, it's being transformed in, you know, changing the, the, uh, to gas. And eventually the temperature increases again. So at 785, it's almost like, you know, the, the only degree of freedom is, is volume. You know, you, if people keep, uh, uh, trading at 785, then that 20 billion could turn 30, 40, 50, whatever. And then obviously the 450, 60, uh, vanish very quickly. But I think the key thing for me is, um, 
what I said earlier. I mean, there is an implicit assumption generally when you have this uh, currency uh, pegs or others that you're going to spend the last penny trying to defend it. And that's really not necessarily a smart thing to do. If you're the government, and I like to use the example of, of Russia, right? Obviously, it was not a peg. But when oil went from, uh, you know, 140 to 30, they spent zero uh, dollars trying to defend the ruble. It was kind of like a free float. So it just went boom. So my point is, you know, once the, re the things have changed, and I think in the case of uh, Hong Kong, as I exposed earlier, it's already happened. I mean, the business has changed. Uh, once you see the situation in China and the divergence, there's pretty much every single dimension pulling in one direction, other than you know, saving face, pretending that it would be a humiliation or whatever. I mean, all you need is for them to say, look, you know what? Japan just devalued by 25%. Now China is 25% or Hong Kong is 25% more expensive relative to, to Japan, which is a direct competitor. You know, I think it's the country's best interest to, to devalue and uh, let's do it, you know, in our own terms. And, uh, and so I think this is the reasonable thing to do. I'm sure that, you know, 39 years ago, the rationale for the peg and throughout this period has been uh, clear, but, uh, and I know Kyle Bass has been on the case for a while. I think the catalyst and, and the hikes and the inflation and the monetary divergence, et cetera, are at a level that were not uh, there before and why I think these things are accelerating and it won't take too long. It will take one or two months of meaningful outflows to create that, that you know, all, what you mentioned earlier, that almost uh, uh, self-fulfilling uh, you know, uh, <laughs> process. Mm. But, yeah. but again, I, I, I keep going back to the point that, you know, fundamentally the game has changed. It's in, in their interest to do it. Um, and, and the markets are not really seeing that at all. So it's one of those very uh, exceptional cases where, you know, what they need to do is what they should do. And, uh, and the market is, is, it, it's something that could potentially happen in a, in, in create some distress and, and insurance, in my opinion, is artificially low. So even if you got it wrong, it wouldn't be uh, a big problem, but if you get it right, then it, it's meaningful. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that's the key takeaway, isn't it? And uh, that probably concludes what has been a, a whistle-stop tour around the world to understand the interest rate and inflation environment uh, of each major region. Uh, and that just leaves me to say thank you very much for joining me on the show, Diego. It's been a real pleasure. It's been uh, my pleasure. Thank you, Hayden and everybody. And I, if anybody wants to discuss further, feel free to, to follow me on double R, double L, or LinkedIn, or I have a newsletter, a free newsletter called the Anti-Bubble Report, which, uh, you know, I expand on many of these issues. So thank you for the opportunity to catch up again and um, best of luck to, to everybody. Thanks, nice Diego. Bye-bye. Thank you. Ta-ta. Thanks for listening, everyone. Just a quick note before we sign off. If you're looking for an easily digestible daily update on the markets, this might be of interest. Opto Updates is our short newsletter sent every day during the trading week, giving you a bulleted list of the top seven stories from the global stock markets. We've done the hard work for you, highlighting relevant opportunities and trends. And in addition, we'll also keep you notified of any new products, stock reports, or webinars from the Opto world. If you're interested, sign up using the link in the show notes. And thanks also to CoFruition for consulting on and producing the show. Until next time.
Kai Fruition.